0: This is an ABC podcast.
1: I was
0: on the train coming back from Sydney to Canberra, and we had just pulled out of Queen Ben Railway Station.
1: Elizabeth Reid was travelling home from a national meeting of student newspaper editors. She was young, ambitious and smart. Years later, she'd be caught up in Australia's most dramatic political showdown – But when she was heading home on the train that night, she was just 18 years old and she had no idea what lay ahead.
0: It was dark. It was maybe about eight o'clock at night.
1: Elizabeth got up and just as she was walking through one of those heavy internal doors on the train, the train slammed on its brakes.
0: And the door was flung out of my hand and then it smashed back.
1: Right into the side of her head
0: just crashed, smashed me into the door, Jeremy. And I probably was unconscious for a while. The next thing I remember is being in the ambulance, but not... I remember just floating along in the ambulance.
1: Elizabeth woke up in hospital confused and with gaps in her memory.
0: There was obviously something wrong with my brain. And they didn't know what it was.
1: She was having trouble concentrating, even for short periods, and she couldn't read anymore. She saw a neurologist who basically told her that it would be dangerous for her to think too hard. He told me,
0: should I ever try to use my brain again, I would end up in an insane asylum. This was 1960. I mean, nobody knew what to do with me.
1: Elizabeth had always imagined herself doing things that traditionally only men did, becoming a university student, a professional, having an independent life. But it seemed like that dream was now gone.
0: He told me that I should learn how to knit, that I would never be able to hold a job that required any thinking and certainly not be able to go back to university.
1: Her university, the Australian National University in Canberra, was a heartbreakingly short walk from home and now, because of a freak accident and a doctor's word, it felt like it may as well have been on another planet.
0: I used to go out at night about midnight, and I used to walk through the ground, just walking through them. Just, it was like a cry in the night. This is where I always thought I'd go. You know, I remember crying on my mother's lap, and she was patting my hair. She didn't know what else. I mean, nobody knew what to say. We all believed them.
1: It took Elizabeth a year and a half just to find the confidence to go back to work.
0: I had to create myself yet again from nothing.
1: She refused to follow the neurologist's advice and hung on to her dream. Instead of staying at home knitting, she kept working, went back to uni, passed with honours, got a scholarship and did a PhD at Oxford... And by the age of 31, she was made the first ever women's advisor to the Prime Minister of Australia, Gough Whitlam. Do
2: you know my first reaction when I saw her?
0: Well, you should have seen the headlines.
2: I thought, what a very pretty girl, why haven't you got just a little bit of makeup on?
0: Everyone thought, Back of this, I'm going to be armed.
2: And she was soon
1: caught up in the middle of an epic struggle between the nation's most powerful men.
2: It was the Governor-General at the window.
1: Australia's new Governor-General was
2: formally sworn in in Canberra today.
3: I, Sir John Robert Kerr, do swear that I will fully serve Her Majesty Queen Elizabeth II. I didn't know the deceit that was being
0: conjured up. I had to get out of I had to disentangle myself. From it.
1: I'm Alex Mann, and this is The 11th. Just nine months before the election that put Whitlam in power, there was a small meeting of women in a lounge room in Melbourne. It was at the height of a new wave of feminism in Australia.
2: So you're going to chain yourselves to bar railings or something? No. What we're doing now is challenging the whole concept that females are only able to do one sort of thing, be a housewife, mother, bring up kids, perhaps a sex
1: symbol. Within a few months, that small meeting in Melbourne had grown into a national organisation called the Women's Electoral Lobby with a membership of thousands. And in the lead-up to the 72 election, these women peppered candidates with questions they'd rarely been asked. Questions about abortion, contraception, equal pay and childcare. They were part of a global women's liberation movement, and it was gathering momentum around the world. The battle cry of the women's liberation movement rings out down New York's Fifth Avenue as more than 10,000 militant feminists... Stage a one-day strike for equal rights.
3: Right one struggle! One fight! Women of the world unite!
1: How effective do you think the women's action group will be?
0: I think it's gonna be a bombshell, baby. I'm just telling you to look out.
1: The growing women's movement hadn't escaped the attention of Whitlam and his advisors. Whitlam had actually come out in support of a few of the movement's key priorities before his election win, like removing the sales tax on contraceptive pills. We would provide, as pharmaceutical benefits, free contraceptives which were prescribed by uh, doctors. He'd also spoken out in favour of women's access to abortion.
4: Well, I don't believe that it should be any longer a crime for a woman to have
1: an abortion. And I don't think a woman should be compelled to have a child if she doesn't want to. Then, soon after he was elected in December 1972, Whitlam advertised a job that had never existed before, not in Australia or anywhere else in the world. It was for a job as a women's advisor to the Prime Minister. The job ad in the newspapers immediately caught the attention of Elizabeth Reid. By this stage, Elizabeth was 31. She was an active member of Canberra's women's liberation movement and a senior university tutor in philosophy. She'd been going to meetings, marches, writing academic papers on abortion law reform and demonstrating in the streets. But this job felt like a real opportunity to change things from the inside. The state
0: was saying to us, you say you want all these things, you demonstrate, you go on marches, you write articles, damning us for not giving you these things. Okay, come and tell us what we need to do.
1: Elizabeth felt a moral obligation to at least apply for the job.
0: And then the next thing I know, I see the shortlist and there's my name on it. (laughs) And I thought, oh, bugger.
1: (laughs) For weeks, headlines screamed indignantly at the $10,000 a year the successful candidate would be paid. It was a pretty normal starting wage for men, but it was more than women were usually paid. The media dubbed the women on the shortlist Goff's Supergirls.
0: There'd been all these cartoons in the paper of uh, women in bathing costumes, parading on a Miss Australia-type platform with the sash across their their breast saying $10,000, which was the public salary to be given.
1: Elizabeth went in for an interview, answered a few questions, then went home, convinced that she wouldn't get the job. A few days later, she got a phone call.
0: Somebody contacted me to say that I had to go and see the Prime Minister.
1: The meeting was late on a Friday afternoon and Elizabeth had a plan.
0: I armed myself with women's lib magic. I had my Laura Ashley long dress.
1: That's not the magic bit.
0: And underneath that I had underpants that the women's lib movement was selling that had the women's lib symbol on the crutch and it means all power to women. And I put those pants on and thought, bugger this, I'm going to be armed for this. And off I went to the lodge.
1: The lodge is the PM's residence in Canberra.
0: I remember sitting on the chair in the library with all these books all around me and Whitlam standing up there. And I was sitting very demurely, my feet on the floor and my hands in my lap and waiting for these questions that were going to come from the Prime Minister.
1: But instead of a cross-examination, Gough just started chatting with Elizabeth.
0: It was clear that we got on well together. I mean it was just this spark that happened between us.
1: It turned out the two of them were big fans of Greek history. Within a few minutes they were deep in conversation.
0: It just from a tense feeling like shit, this is an interview to end all interviews to oh here am I perched up on his land having this wonderful, vivid, lively conversation. And it was just extraordinary
1: Elizabeth got the job and she ran back to her family to share the news.
0: And I remember saying to my parents, I remember having a few drinks and lifting up my Laura Ashley dress, showing my parents, showing, exposing my women's lib sign to the family saying, I think I've got it. <laughs>
1: there wasn't a single female MP in Whitlam's government. And just days after those celebrations, Elizabeth began to realise what she was in for.
0: So the press came to my house in O'Connor. Well, let's make sure our cameras are rolling, uh, chappies.
1: She was sitting in a dining room chair, facing a hungry mob of journalists. Would you describe yourself as a women's liberationist?
0: If you could tell me what what you meant by it.
1: Well, I mean, you disagree with
4: marriage, and as I understand it, you only just tolerate children.
1: Elizabeth was married, but had separated from her husband, Their young daughter lived with him and Elizabeth was goaded constantly about it.
0: Oh, on the contrary, I don't disagree with marriage and I love children.
1: There were a lot of press there. I mean, it was pretty full.
0: And they sat around and they asked me a whole series of questions. What do I think about abortion? What do I think about homosexuality?
1: Elizabeth answered all the questions earnestly.
0: Well, you should have seen the headlines the next day.
1: Clippings show full-page photos of Elizabeth Reid with screaming headlines in bold type like PM Supergirl says legalise pot and abortion.
0: It was an amazing lesson for me.
1: At this point, she hadn't even started the job yet. And when she did, the rabid coverage continued and it was non-stop. The Courier-Mail described her as wearing flared jeans, blouse, tank top and no bra. The opposition found a student newspaper article she'd written on masturbation and read it out in Parliament. The papers ran that story too. I actually found a whole folder of these articles in the ABC's research library. So when Elizabeth and I spoke, I pulled a few of the old yellowed clippings out to show her.
0: Oh, are they, are they the headlines? Yes. <gasps> oh, God, you can see. Would the sister please stand still for a moment and stop wobbling under their T-shirts?
1: Then Elizabeth saw the little photo of the guy who wrote the article.
0: Just the indignity of it. The smart ass. Look at him, the smart ass. Entitlement of that man. The Koori Mail said, Liz Reed, 33, who doesn't wear a bra, said in Canberra today. Or Liz Reed, 33, whose daughter doesn't live with her, said in Canberra today. And they, were, I mean, they felt they had the right to do those sorts of things. Talk about baptism by fire or
1: something. As an advisor to the Prime Minister, Elizabeth's role was directly attached to Whitlam's. Her office was in the same section of Parliament House as his. And while Elizabeth may have been surrounded by negative media coverage and sexist innuendo, she says she got nothing but decency from Whitlam.
0: I was never silenced by him. He never told me... what I could or couldn't do. I was wondering if I could come and see you sometime soon about two quite important
2: areas.
1: This tape captures a rare moment of the two of them working together.
2: Okie doke, so if I could talk to you about
4: that. Right, we will want to have the bill to set up the preschool commission ready for when Parliament meets uh, in February.
0: Right,
3: so we should do it Mm. as soon as possible.
1: Elizabeth received the same latitude and freedom that Whitlam gave to his ministers and other staff, That hands-off approach would cause a lot of trouble for Whitlam, but for Elizabeth, it represented an opportunity.
3: How do you find a
2: Prime Minister to work with?
3: Very easy, very
0: easy to get at, easy to work with and receptive to ideas.
1: From her place by the Prime Minister's side, Elizabeth Reid had access to power and a shot at making real change.
0: It was like having an imprimatur, if I can put it that way.
1: Elizabeth believed the best way to improve the lives of women was to first talk to them. She decided to ask the women of Australia what they wanted her to achieve. Australian women had never had someone like Elizabeth to write to, and they had a lot to say.
0: And it wasn't long before I was getting more letters than any, uh, anybody else in, in, in government other than the Prime Minister. Hundreds a week, and maybe even more, maybe thousands a week.
1: To Elizabeth, Elizabeth my minister's advisor on women. I'm writing to seek your help in bringing to the notice. And you
0: should see some of the letters I got were just heartbreaking.
1: As you are aware, it's almost impossible for single women to obtain credit of purchase. Women wrote to Elizabeth about access to abortion, birth control, their violent partners, and about how they couldn't get a bank loan without the signature of a man. So I'm a working, single woman, entirely self-supporting. I'm a married, working mother with a three-year-old daughter. As her time to commence school draws near, I have not been able to organise any after-school care.
0: These were page after page of cries from the heart.
1: What happens to the career of parents and the well-being of the but child? i prepared to pay off the loan quickly within a few months. Really, I think this is scandalous. Surely this is extremely wrong. In summary... No Each
0: I'm letter was a work of the agony world. of the writer, and, and, the and I think they just felt that... Now that there was somebody in that position, maybe somebody would listen to us.
1: Please look into this matter. It's very important in women's lives. Yours truly. Yours faithfully. Sincerely. Florence. E. Francis Jordan. But tackling the concerns of women letter by letter made for slow progress. Elizabeth was in an impossible situation. She was overworked, understaffed, and on top of that, she was facing criticism on all fronts. Feminists accused her of not doing enough, while sections of the media targeted her and seemed to be willing her to fail.
2: Do you think she's been put there uh, to make it look good, to make it just appear that the Prime Minister has an advisor on women's affairs? I don't think she thinks that, but I'm inclined to think that does so. In the months since your appointment, you haven't been very visible and uh, granted very few interviews. What have you actually achieved in the time... Uh, since your appointment, or has the government relegated you to the position of token lady without any real power or influence? It's
0: an impossible job for one person to have, uh, you know, just in the sense that there's so much that could be done, it's frustrating that you're not capable, you just don't have the time.
1: Elizabeth was determined to show everyone that her appointment hadn't just been an exercise in window dressing, and she had an idea how to do it. Among all those letters that the women of Australia were sending to Elizabeth, one topic kept coming up.
0: People were crying out for childcare. Every woman working in a factory. Every woman living in a suburb who needed money but couldn't find work.
1: Back then, childcare wasn't available to everyone who needed it. It was assumed that most women would stay out of the workforce to care for children. Elizabeth wanted to change all that, and fast. But just as she was working towards a policy fix, Whitlam called the 1974 double dissolution election that you heard about last episode. And Whitlam's plan for that election was to change nothing.
0: He told us all in no uncertain terms there'd be no new policy. In
4: 1972, I came before you with the most detailed, the most comprehensive program ever placed before the Australian people.
1: His faith in the suite of policies he'd taken to the last election was unshaken.
4: In the weeks to come, I will not be putting forward a new program, but rather the new dimensions and the expanded fruits of the program we have been trying to implement.
1: As the election campaign began, the work of government stopped completely and Elizabeth started to wonder what to do with herself. She decided there was nothing to do except take a holiday. With her daughter Catherine, Elizabeth hopped on a plane and escaped for the warmth of North Queensland to a small, low-key resort town called Palm Cove.
0: We got there late afternoon, unpacked our bags, and we had this motel with a pool. Just lovely, really lovely.
1: The problems of Canberra faded into the background. The biggest problem Elizabeth had now was getting some milk for breakfast.
0: So we got out and started walking down the road, and on our left is the sea, with the palm trees and the sun's glittering on the sea. Beautiful, absolutely beautiful. We're walking down the middle of this tarred road and suddenly about a hundred yards in front of me I see this shape crossing the road towards the sea and I think Oh no, I don't believe this. I just don't believe it. And it was Whitlam. This is where Whitlam had decided to retreat to to write the his speech for the his policy speech for the election.
1: It turns out Gough Whitlam felt like Palm Cove would be a good place for a rest too.
0: I couldn't believe it. And he said, Hello, Ruff, what are you doing here? I said, well, I might say the same Prime Minister. What are you doing here?
1: Even in the midst of a holiday, Elizabeth sensed an opportunity.
0: And I said to him almost straight away, I said, Boss, you've got to have one new policy. There's got to be one new policy. It's time we had a childcare policy.
1: Incredibly, it worked. Whitlam agreed.
0: When the election came, we had one new policy in May 1974, and that was the right of access to childcare of every parent in Australia.
4: We're going to take new initiatives for childcare, for the care and education of children before they start school.
1: In the end, that childcare policy took decades to turn out the way Elizabeth wanted – And that's the thing, Elizabeth seemed ahead of her time. Such a strong voice standing up for women in such a blokey era. A lot of the reforms she pushed for, like equal pay, protections for disadvantaged women, abortion law reform, they're things that women are still fighting for today. But all those years ago, Elizabeth was there, the only woman inside the government, already pushing those issues to the centre of the national conversation. After that 1974 election, Australia got a new Governor-General.
3: I, Sir John Robert Kerr, do swear that I will well and truly serve Her Majesty Queen Elizabeth II, her heirs and successors according to law, without fear or favour, affection or ill will. So help me God.
1: Sir John Kerr was hand-picked by the Prime Minister, Gough Whitlam,
2: Sir John, why have you accepted this appointment as Governor General?
3: Well, the office is a very high one and it is a great honour to be offered it.
1: Sir John Kerr was a senior judge, a Chief Justice of the New South Wales Supreme Court, but he'd been chosen by Whitlam in part for his Labor Party roots. He'd come from working class stock and through hard work and academic excellence, he'd risen through the legal hierarchy. Kerr had big ambitions for the role of Governor General. He'd studied the Constitution, studied the full extent of the power that he now held, and studied the ways that it could be used. He didn't see himself as some kind of ceremonial figurehead, someone who just made nice speeches and opened buildings. He saw his position as powerful, one up from the Prime Minister, with a direct line to the Queen.
3: The fact is that the Constitution requires that there should be a Governor-General, and the Governor-General, as I know, has very uh, important things to do.
4: I used to regularly go and visit him as the Governor-General. He was, he was a bit of a quasi-politician.
1: That's John Menadieu, the head of the Department of Prime Minister and Cabinet.
4: And So I'd go out there probably once every few weeks to inform him uh, what was happening, what the Cabinet was about, and uh, I think he found it useful. I probably
1: did as well. The new Governor-General liked to check in on Whitlam to see how he was going and what his government was working on.
4: So in all those meetings, he was very concerned about the Prime Minister, his welfare, how was he standing up, and that lulled me into a false sense of security. I didn't know the deceit that was being conjured up.
1: In late 1974, there was a soiree near Yes, just outside of Canberra at the country estate of newspaper baron Rupert Murdoch.
4: John Kerr was invited for sort of drinks, and John Kerr liked to drink.
1: By this stage, Murdoch was shifting his support away from Whitlam. And
4: Rupert, who was pretty good at getting people to talk their head off, but he was a great listener, uh, encouraged Kerr to talk.
1: John Menadieu wasn't at the event, but he knows a couple of people who were. It was a gathering of Murdoch's newspaper editors his editors
4: not from just Australia but around the world and they discussed the state affairs, the world affairs and uh, how the newspapers were going.
1: The big topic at this event was the possibility of another political stalemate in Canberra. The double-dissolution election, which had been prompted by the opposition blocking Whitlam's agenda, was less than six months ago. There was a lot of talk about what might happen if the opposition decided to do that all over again, and then if they did, what the Governor-General would do about it.
4: Kerr outlined, as I said, he'd probably had a few drinks, which he usually did at that time of the day, a lot of drinks, often. Very indiscreet and laid out before Murdoch what his options might be. And Murdoch would have tucked that away for next time.
1: At around the same time, Murdoch had lunch with the American ambassador. And we actually know what happened at that lunch, because of Wikileaks. A few years ago, they dropped a huge trove of diplomatic cables online. And in one of those cables from late 1974... The American ambassador goes to great efforts to detail exactly what Murdoch said.
4: Murdoch was confident that the Whitlam government would be gone in 12 months' time.
1: Rupert Murdoch, once a strong supporter of Whitlam, was now predicting his demise.
0: To John Kerr, well, I mean, it was inevitable that in the course of my job I was going to come across him.
1: At around the same time as the party at Murdoch's place, the Governor-General, Sir John Kerr, approached Elizabeth Reid for help writing a speech.
0: And of course you can't say no.
1: It was a speech to the Associated Country Women of the World.
0: If you, on the staff of the Prime Minister and the Governor-General, comes and says, excuse me, but would you help me with my speech on women, that's it.
1: Elizabeth ended up helping him with a number of speeches.
0: And uh, once or twice we were in Sydney at the same time. And he invited me to dinner at Admiralty House and I went.
1: The end of 1974 was a difficult time for Sir John Kerr. His wife had died a few months earlier from a long illness and it was known that he was looking for company. It was in the middle of that summer that Cyclone Tracy cut a path through Darwin. Whitlam had flown back from Europe to survey the damage and was soon due back in Sydney. The Governor-General was at his house on the harbour, Admiralty House. Elizabeth Reid was waiting at the Prime Minister's house, which was right next door.
0: I remember being at uh, Kirribilli House, the Prime Minister's residence in Sydney, and we had to arrange all sorts of things.
1: With all the senior advisers travelling with the PM, Elizabeth and another member of his staff, Paddy Warne, had stayed in Sydney to look after things back home.
2: So Liz and I had gone to Kirribilli House early in the evening...
1: You heard from Paddy back in episode one. She and Elizabeth both remember the waiting.
2: The plane had been expected to arrive, I don't know, maybe seven o'clock, something like that. And we were drinking orange juice.
1: Whitlam's flight back to Sydney kept getting delayed.
0: We were sitting in, in the comfortable lounge chairs.
1: There was an amazing view. In the background was Sydney Harbour. In the foreground, the gardens of Kirribilli.
0: And it looked out over the garden, over the vegetable garden, and where I was sitting, I was facing the French windows.
1: The two friends were chatting, enjoying the view, when suddenly they saw something moving outside.
0: This bumbling, large-ish form stumbling through the vegetable garden in the moonlight.
1: There was a loud knock on the glass, and a man's face appeared. And it was the
2: Governor-General...
1: At the window.
2: And uh, he wanted to come in to Kirribilli House. Oh, Sir John, do come in. The housekeeper asked Sir John what he would like to drink and he had indicated scotch. So we're sitting on the veranda at Kirribilli House waiting for Gough to arrive.
1: So they're all talking and getting along well
2: enough. Sir John is being very expansive and talking about how when he was a young man, he used to take his wife on ferry trips across Sydney Harbour. And when they, when they passed Kirribilli House, she would always say, that is my favourite house in Sydney, that's where I'd like to live one day. And he said, and I wasn't able to oblige her, I had to have the one next door, Admiralty House.
1: Patty and Elizabeth used to tease each other about who might become the object of Sir John's new quest for love.
2: There was a lot of ribaldry about, you know, whether Lizzie or I might be the new Lady Kerr. I mean, it was never going to be me, He wasn't interested in me, but it was possible that she might have been a candidate.
1: Soon, it became clear that Gough's plane wasn't going to get in until nearly midnight, and there was no point waiting around anymore.
2: We thought we'd call it a day. We knew nobody would want to see us at 11 o'clock at night.
1: But the night was young, and so were Paddy and Elizabeth.
2: Paddy said, we're going off to a party now.
1: And Sir John asked...
2: Well, where is it?
1: The party was at Paddy's house, not far down the road. So I
2: gave him the address and said, you, of course, would be very welcome, very welcome to join us.
0: But I don't think we thought he'd turn up. Certainly I didn't.
2: So we get to the door of of Kirribilli House, and Joe, the Scottish housekeeper, is at the door. And uh, she'd heard this conversation, and she produced another bottle of scotch. And she said, I think you'll need this. And I said, what for? And she said, well, I think you'll find that you have an extra visitor.
1: Patty and Elizabeth walked the less than 10 minutes back to Patty's place.
0: And the party was, I don't know, it was up about the fourth or fifth floor of an apartment block.
1: By this point, it was late, and there were just three or four people left.
2: Oh, It was a very small party, very little party, up, out, on the, uh, out on the balcony of our nice, our nice unit overlooking a different part of Kirribilli, actually.
1: Paddy and Elizabeth started telling everyone what had just happened. They were dining out on the story of the Governor-General lurking in the garden.
2: And they all thought that was very funny, Very funny
1: indeed. Then they're like, oh, and by the way, he might turn up to this party.
2: Nobody believed us. Nobody believed us. And Elizabeth said, well, he might, he might come. And I said, of course, he's not going to come. Don't be stupid. So about one o'clock in the morning, the intercom goes. And Lizzie and I say, oh, that'll be the Governor General. Everybody says, ha, 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 ha. And I go and answer the intercom and say yes, and a rather embarrassed male voice says, "Is that the residence of Miss Warren?" And I said, "Yes," and he said, uh, "It's gave his name, the Governor General's Adacon." I said, "I'll oh, do come up," and there's a sort of hushed silence
0: in the room. Like, what's the Governor General doing here? I mean, a, to have a Governor General turn up at a, just an ordinary party, you know, just where people were just collecting together and chatting and drinking and talking. I actually think,
2: in all honesty, that the other people at the party were just stunned. The bottle of Queen Anne's Scotch was opened and made available to Her Majesty's representative on my modest little balcony. And there was a rambling conversation that went on for a couple of hours, while Sir John had more than one Scotch quite a few scotches.
1: One of Paddy's other friends decided to ask the Governor-General how he should go about getting in touch with the Queen.
2: And he said very pompously, well, you wouldn't do that. You wouldn't do that because I am the Queen's representative in Australia and it is only proper for me to communicate with the Queen. So we all ribbed him a bit about that. You know, our entitlements as citizens. She's our Queen too, not just yours. And, you know, anyone should be able to get in touch with Buckingham Palace or the Queen if they want to, and clearly did. Very secure in his knowledge of his own importance and his own particular relationship with the palace and putting these young people in their place.
1: By this point, it was getting really late and eventually the Governor-General was convinced to go home.
2: And eventually, he uh, he left. A couple of hours later, he left.
1: So Elizabeth Reid had a direct line to Sir John Kerr. And as 1974 drew to a close, she decided to put it to good use. Around the same time as the party, she asked him to take part in a TV special for the beginning of International Women's Year. It is my pleasant task today to open International Women's Year in Australia. It was good for Elizabeth that the Governor-General had lent his authority to her event. But Elizabeth remembers their interactions were getting awkward. The footage shows the two of them sitting side by side and talking about the role of women in Australia.
3: Uh, But surely you would agree that uh, a very considerable number of women, I would think by far the majority, are perfectly happy with uh, the kind of uh, life that society has traditionally offered them.
1: Elizabeth responds tactfully.
0: I think that if you ask most women, they would say they are happy. But I think that, on the other hand, if you know no alternative, you don't know what will make you happiest. I think Australian society, to a certain extent, is a man's world. I think women suffer from this and I think other groups suffer from this.
3: Is it your view that women want to get out there into that jungle and fight it out with the men for power?
0: Well, I think that women are thinking of this at present and this is one of the, the changes that is coming about in our society. Women are saying, we want a few things changed and to do that we'll go into politics, we'll go into Parliament, we'll go and fight for, for what we want.
1: Soon after this, the recording comes to an end. The two take a breath and sit chatting awkwardly as the cameraman gets a few extra shots for editing.
3: The shot it will be a close-up shot. Yes, so. I see. Now, looking at Miss Reed, could you look at Miss Reed now?
1: The audio you're hearing now is from outtakes we found in the ABC archives. It didn't go to air. Can I just look at her
3: admiringly? or I, do, I have to look at her. Yeah, <laughs> look at her admiringly. I mean, Well, did you enjoy doing this program with me? Yes, of course, Your
2: Excellency, anything
3: you say. You'll have to be quiet, though, because we we
0: could read your lips. It was obvious that the man was interested, and I wasn't, but I needed to be able to work with him.
1: Elizabeth says that working relationship became more difficult. At one point, he asked to marry her.
0: That was when he said, why would you work for the second most important person when you could be married to the most important person in the land? He had a strong sense of entitlement. I think that's it. Strong sense of entitlement. What I've since learned is that that sense of entitlement is actually almost a sign of misogyny. It's a mark of misogyny.
1: Then Elizabeth starts telling me a story that she's never shared publicly before. It's almost like, as she tells the story, she's trying to make sense of it herself for the first time.
0: I can just remember that it was quite awkward.
1: It was late, and the Governor-General had been drinking. Then, as he was leaving, something happened. They were in a tight space.
0: And I remember a bit of a shuffle around, because I remember at one stage thinking, oh, oh, that man's wearing a corset.
1: He was pressing up against you.
0: Yeah. This man was trying to, I don't know, do I even have the words for trying to make out or some phrase like that, trying to get closer to me to I mean, he was pouring me.
1: In the chair opposite me, Elizabeth gestures with her hands over her body. With his hands.
0: With his hands and... um, and his body, and, and I had to get out of I had to disentangle myself from it.
1: Sir so John Kerr died in 1991, so we can't put these allegations to him. And for the same reason, Elizabeth is still reluctant to talk about what happened. Are you able to describe um, what you thought was happening at that time?
0: Well, well, I mean... uh I'm reluctant to because he can't defend himself.
1: Do you, What do you think young people hearing that story, you know, in mm. this more, I guess, modern context of those sorts of um, behaviours would would make of this incident?
0: Look, I don't... I, I mean... It's human for people to have to be infatuated, to lust, to love. All these are human reactions. And he was a man who who had lost his wife. He was clearly considering whether or not I would be an appropriate person. I mean, he proposed,
1: after all. It's like in pushing it aside in 1974, she almost pushed it aside for good. If somebody was to tell a story like the one... Hmm you're telling I think people would be appalled appalled.
0: I I think that I wasn't allowed the luxury of of feeling I mean I had to get up the next day and face him in a formal work situation or, or face the Prime Minister or what have you I had so much work that had to be done I didn't have time to think about these things
1: You imagine the sorts of stories of Powerful men being forced to face consequences for exactly that now. sort of behavior now oh yes
0: <laughs> what Gee. you're just des-
1: what you're describing it it sounds like a sexual assault
0: mm. well, would I call it sexual assault? I have no doubt that the intention was somewhat similar to that, yes, I don't think he was as successful as he would have liked to have been. Assaulted. I didn't feel sexually assaulted, put it that way, because he wasn't... He exuded an air of incompetence.
1: In the next episode of The 11th, Elizabeth's job is on the line. She becomes convinced that the Governor-General is a risk to the government, and she tries to warn Gough Whitlam.
0: He couldn't hear what I was trying to tell him about the Governor-General. been listening to an abc podcast if you've been inspired by elizabeth reed's story you might want to check out ladies we need to talk like it says on the box it's a podcast for women by women that isn't afraid to dive headfirst into some tricky taboo topics
1: i have a leg of lamb ready for dinner but you need to get it in the oven so please turn it on at twelve thirty to 160 degrees Don't forget to see if we can get daycare this Friday. Also, did you call your dad about the holidays? Mm -hmm. This performance women do every day
3: has a few names. Emotional labour, the second shift,
1: or my favourite, the mental load.
3: Everyone actually carries the mental load. Mm -hmm. So some portion of your mental load may go to thinking about your career, your family, your personal life. And the difference is the balance across men and women
0: hosted by the one and only Yumi Steins, you can listen for free to
1: Ladies We Need To Talk on the ABC Listen app or on podcast apps like Apple and Google.